When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, if you have a connected car, there are some things you should be concerned about. Then, what you never knew about your blood. For example, that getting a transfusion can be a real risk. In general, if you don't have to get a transfusion, and I could tell you that most of the times you don't, you will avoid all of the negative aspects associated with a transfusion, which in essence is a transplant. Also, the everyday surfaces you want to make sure you don't touch. And burnout. It's a big problem. What causes it and how do we tackle it? If we tackle one thing immediately, I would say it would be managing unsustainable workloads because it is the leading cause. There's five other root causes, but overwork being the number one is a substantial and important place for us to tackle. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, I, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to Something You Should Know. If you have a car that was made in the last several years, you have, most likely, a connected car. And in many ways, that's a good thing. With a connected car... Automakers and vendors can send and receive information directly with the car. What could be wrong with that? Well, a couple of things, according to automotive journalist Peter Bohr. He says one automaker wanted to charge an $18 a month subscription just to turn the seat heaters on in their customers' cars. And if the customers didn't pay for it, they wouldn't switch on the seat heaters, even though the seat heaters were already in the car and the customers had already paid for it. 
Another car maker offers its electric vehicle customers Acceleration Boost software for a subscription of $1,200 a year. Don't pay it, you don't get the Acceleration Boost. These kind of subscriptions make car makers a lot of money. Mercedes-Benz earned more than a billion dollars in these subscription fees last year. Customers tend not to like them. And there are some other possibilities that don't sound too pleasing. Say you miss a car payment or two. The manufacturer could just turn off your car. And that is something you should know. In all the discussions I've ever had about health, I've never heard anyone say anything about taking better care of your blood. Blood? I've always figured that the blood running in my veins is just in there running in my veins and doesn't need a whole lot of attention from me except for the occasional blood test. But the blood itself wasn't something to take care of. And if you needed blood, like, say, in an operation, well, you just go get a transfusion, and that's that. But what if blood from a transfusion isn't so great? You're about to hear some amazing things about your blood you've likely never heard before, from Dr. R.E.A. Shander. Dr. Shander is Emeritus Chair at the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care Medicine, Pain Management, and Hyperbaric Medicine at Englewood Hospital in New Jersey, and he has a whole host of other impressive medical credentials like that. He's also one of the authors of a book called Bloodworks, What Every Person Needs to Know Before They Are a Patient. Hi, Doctor. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Thank you, Mike. So maybe let's start with what blood is. What is it? Why is it there? Why do I have it? Well, I'm going to start with what is blood. And most of us know that there are solid organs like a brain, the heart, the kidneys, etc. Blood is an organ, but it's a liquid organ. And it is a fascinating organ. And the reason it's so fascinating because it has multiple functions. It does a lot of different things. First of all, it sustains life by delivering oxygen and getting rid of of acid, uh, which is a byproduct. And um, in addition to that, just like any other organ, we need to take care of it. And most of us are really not aware of the fact that it requires maintenance. So how much blood do I have? The quick answer is that every individual, as you know, has different size, uh, so that the volume or the amount of blood that's circulating uh, in your uh, veins and arteries uh, varies. But in essence, uh, for adult, uh, we're talking about probably about two gallons of blood circulating in your arteries and veins, and that's enough. Uh, now, we fluctuate up and down because it's a liquid. Again, if, you, if you're dehydrated and you're not drinking enough, you may have a little less uh, blood circulating. So you had mentioned that the blood has lots of different functions and we need to take care of it. Still, I I think in most conversations the average person has about health and what they need to do, seldom does, oh, and what have you done for your blood lately? It doesn't come up. It's not a topic. So what is it that people should be doing for their blood, and how would you be doing that? You know, that's a very insightful question. That's a great question because many people are just not aware. They're not aware that blood requires the maintenance. The one fascinating thing about the blood is that this is one of the only organs that actually regenerates. If you lose blood and you have enough iron or vitamins, you can rebuild 
that organ back without having any any transplant or transfusion. You could do it all on your own. And to do that, we need to make sure that the nutrients that blood requires uh, are sufficient, um, namely iron. If you don't have enough iron on board, your blood is going to be weak, if you will. Uh, it's not going to function as well as if it does have the iron. And we can replenish iron very easily. So this is one way of, if you will, main, maintaining your blood health is by looking to see how much iron you have. Many people can become what we call symptomatic, meaning they'll have some symptoms and you could be tired, uh, it may be difficult to concentrate. Uh, all this due to the fact that your iron is low and you have what we call anemia, meaning the blood count uh, or is also reduced. So if you were to stop people on the street, what would you guess how many of them have low iron in their blood? Is it common? Is it uncommon? What? So if, you, if you're uh, stopping people on the street, and let's look at this from a global point of view, because it could be any street in the world. Overall, we have about 8 billion people on this planet right now, of which more than 3 billion have some level of anemia, meaning low blood. And majority of those have to do with the fact that there is low iron. Uh, in U.S., uh, we know that patients who go for surgery, as an example, about four out of ten people have low iron and low blood. And do they tend to have something in common? Do they tend to be elderly people? Do they tend to be young people? Do they tend to be smokers? I mean, what, what, what do they have, or is it just random? Well, it doesn't discriminate. It's anywhere from young, actually the number one population, meaning the number one group of people who have low blood and also low iron happen to be children below the age of five and women. Uh, women who are uh, both uh, in their childbearing years as well as elderly women. Uh, as you increase with age, the likelihood of men having low iron and low blood also increases but it is across the board. And the reason people have low iron in their blood is diet, primarily? It could be diet. The other way that we lose iron is through bleeding. And bleeding can occur, of course, we think of trauma. Uh, in hospitalized patients, we think of the blood uh, drawing that gets done you know, for testing. Uh, that is a big draw of, uh, of iron also. So bleeding from trauma, uh, bleeding from parasites. Uh, some parasites can also cause bleeding. Uh, kidney disease also causes your gut, your, your gut to lose iron. So there are many ways that we can lose iron. I want to I wanna make sure I understand. When you say low blood, do you mean low volume of blood? I mean low cells, uh, red cells in your blood, anemia is the term. Uh, so again, in, in very simple terminology, this means that the number of red cells, which really are the main component of blood, are low. You don't have enough. Well, I guess I don't understand the difference between low blood and low iron. Isn't it the same thing? 
No, it's not, Mike. Uh, and that is a source of confusion. Uh, you need iron to maintain the blood uh, red cell count or to have the, the, the normal amount of uh, red cells. Uh, you need iron for that. You can have the normal amount of red cells and still be deficient, still have a low iron in your body because you're not taking enough. It takes time uh, between uh, the body recognizing that it has low iron to actually now reduce the number of red cells that are in your body. So the initial, the initial reduction of iron can occur without losing red cells. Uh, but if it continues for a long period of time, then you're going to have a reduction in your red cells or low blood. So is, is blood like a closed loop in a healthy person, for example? The blood you have when you're five, is it the same blood you have when you're 55? Because you haven't bled out, you haven't had transfusions, you, it just it's a closed circuit, so it just stays there? Or does it come and go? The actual components, meaning the cells that are in your blood, change root, oh, over a few months. They completely change. And the reason is they regenerate themselves. So the blood constantly is turning over using the same nutrients that are in your body, such as iron, B12, but they're all new cells. And when you're 55, you may still have um, a normal blood count uh, and and you still require the nutrients, but those cells are only about three months or so old, uh, and they get keep regenerating themselves. So it is a closed loop in one way, but it's also a closed loop that keeps regenerating itself over time. I want to talk about transfusions in a moment here, because what you have to say, I think, will surprise a lot of people. I'm talking with R.E.A. Shander. He is a medical doctor and one of the authors of the book, Blood works, what every person needs to know before they are a patient. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So doctor, years ago, many, many years ago, doctors used to bleed patients, believing, I guess, that by letting blood out of the body, that that was somehow a good thing. Is giving blood, losing blood a good thing? Absolutely not. Having normal amount of blood in your body regulates your daily activity. It really helps you in terms of getting through the day. If your blood is low, you're going to be fatigued. Uh, you're going to also at times could be also confused. 
there is information out there showing that productivity is reduced if they don't have uh, the proper blood count. So you want to have you want to have a normal blood count. Uh, bleeding is not a good thing. And as a matter of fact, what you want to also do is, and I mentioned early on, is you want to maintain uh, the blood, keeping it healthy. But what about giving blood? Is that, it sounds like that's not a good thing. Well, the uh, giving of blood or donation of blood uh, is actually regulated, meaning it's a small amount of blood that is taking. It's a bag of blood that's being taken from you, and you can replenish that pretty easily. And as you know, there's also, you can't um, donate blood every day. You have to have weeks in between donation of blood because you will build your blood back. As I already mentioned, it regenerates. That's not a bad thing. Uh, in, in many ways, it's thought of as being philanthropic. The question, of course, is now you, if you're going to receive that blood as a patient, you're receiving somebody else's blood. And I'm sure you and our audience know that transplanting any organ uh, is associated with all sorts of treatments and medications uh, to suppress your own body reaction to a new organ that's coming from someone else. So the actual transfusion of the blood that's being donated really has to be thought of more than once before we do that. And unfortunately, in healthcare, we have been used to just looking at somebody who has low blood and instead of looking to see why is it iron is it b12 is it inflammation we just reach for the blood that's available as a transfusion and we know that that's been associated with worse outcome now it doesn't mean for everyone that there is a bad outcome but in general if you don't need if you don't have to get a transfusion and i could tell you that most of the times you don't because you can actually treat the blood and make it regenerate by providing the nutrients that it needs, you will avoid all of the negative aspects associated with a transfusion, which in essence is a transplant. And what's, like, what's typically the worst that's going to happen? What, what are these negative outcomes? They can be anything from infection, kidney, uh, damaging kidney, it could also be associated with clotting, and the clotting can be in the brain, it could be in the heart, or it could be in your legs or arms. Uh, so the list is long, including the fact that some patients don't survive uh, the transplant or the transfusion. Well, that comes as a surprise to me. I mean, I thought, I think most people think that transfusions are a relatively benign procedure, that there isn't a whole lot of risk to it and and that it's fairly routine and simple well unfortunately it's still routine as i mentioned that people still reach for that as a simple way of raising the number of cells by giving somebody else's blood but in fact we know that this is associated with negative outcomes as we call it or if you will with with complications how often does it result in negative outcomes? Is it, you know, one in 10 or one in 10 million? No, it's not one in 10 million. And uh, it's very difficult to quantitate. It's actually, when we try to measure that, it's clearly more in the one to 10 than it is in the one to a million. There are some people who need the blood because the bone marrow, which makes the blood, 
and that's inside your bones. The bone marrow, if that is affected by cancer or by uh, chemotherapy, as an example, uh, you're not going to be able to make blood. You're not going to be able to replenish that blood. And those individuals, unfortunately, to survive require repeated transfusions. So we try to avoid giving people blood today. That's called sort of a restrictive approach to transfusion. And to do that, we need to identify that your blood is healthy before you go to surgery and making sure that you have plenty of it, meaning that your iron stores are there, that your, your vitamins are there, that the blood count, the amount of blood that's in your body is actually sufficient to go through surgery, that even if you bleed uh, through surgery, you will be able to replenish it. But isn't it also just a volume problem? In surgery, you're going to lose, a, you cut somebody open, they start to bleed all over the place, that you, you need to replenish the volume of blood, no matter how healthy the patient's blood is, if it's all on the floor, it's not doing them much good. Well, uh, interestingly, we try not to get it on the floor anymore, Mike. What we do is we collect that blood and return it to the patient at the bedside. So we have ways of collecting the blood sterilely, which is your own blood, and giving it back to you. It's called cell saver. Uh, so that machinery is available for surgeries where there is considerable amount of blood being lost. The volume, though, as you mentioned, can be replaced. You don't have to give blood to replace the volume. You can use sterile water that has electrolytes in it uh, to, um, to sustain the volume, the circulating volume in the patient. What about the idea uh, I've heard of, uh, like if you were going to go in for surgery, that you would pre-donate your own blood? Is that is that a thing? It was a thing uh, during the hepatitis C and uh, HIV epidemic. We don't do this anymore, Mike, uh, routinely. There may be a few areas in the country where people are actually insisting on in doing it. However, uh, if you're going to pre-donate your blood, you're going to have a low blood count going into surgery. And what we know is that when you end up in surgery with a low blood count, not only will you get your blood that you stored away, but you're more likely to get blood also from someone else. So it doesn't stop uh, you from receiving blood from someone else. Actually, there's a higher risk of you receiving blood from someone else if you what we call pre-donate the blood meaning uh, donating the blood before surgery. Because somebody would make a mistake and give you someone else's blood, or once you get your blood, then when that runs out, you then get somebody else's blood? Uh, the latter is more common, uh, although there are always mistakes uh, being made, but they're very rare, but still that's a risk. So if you're thinking of going to surgery and your blood is healthy, the likelihood is you're not going to need a transfusion. However. If you go to surgery, something happens, and you lose a lot of blood, you're probably better off getting the blood that's been tested and available, um, which is, again, donated blood from someone else, than doing a pre-donation. But, but last question about transfusions and understanding that there are risks to getting transfused blood from somebody else, but it, at some point, does the risk end or is it a long-term risk for the rest of your life because you got a pint of blood 20 years ago? We have been asking this question for quite a while and we really don't have a definitive 
answer. Uh, I could tell you that we know that if you get organs such as blood from someone else, there are going to be proteins uh, from the donor that may circulate or may affect your own blood for years. Uh, but we really don't know what the impact is in terms of your health overall over, over a long period of time. So I imagine if you wanted to know how healthy your blood was, you would take a blood test. So what would you ask for? What would you tell the doctor? So there are two components. One of them is what's in the red cell is something called hemoglobin. And that's what gives actually the red cell the color red. So a hemoglobin level is probably a good test to have, but that comes in a battery of, of tests called a CBC or con complete blood count. And it looks at all of the elements in the blood because you also have red cells, you have white cells, and you have platelets in your blood, including also other clotting factors. So the CBC allows us to, or the complete blood count, allows us to look at all of the cells in your blood. Well, I know you're on a campaign to inform the public about blood and the health of their blood, and, and this has been a really interesting to hear, and I hope helps spread the word. Dr. Ari A. Shander has been my guest. He is a medical doctor, emeritus chair of the Department of Anesthesiology, Critical Care Medicine, Pain Management, and Hyperbaric Medicine at Englewood Hospital in Englewood, New Jersey. And he is one of the authors of the book, Blood Works, What Every Person Needs to Know Before They Are a Patient. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Think of all the times you've said, or you've heard somebody else say, I'm so burned out. We hear about people being burned out at work or, or just in general. So what is burnout? Where does it come from? How do you prevent it? How do you get rid of it if you have it? Well, here to dive deep into the topic of burnout is Jennifer Moss. Jennifer is an award-winning journalist, public speaker, and author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Something You Should Know. 
I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So is burnout an objective thing? Like, here are the traits of burnout, and if you have these, you have burnout. Or is burnout just a self-diagnosed feeling? If you feel burned out, you're burned out. It's a bit of both. You know, one of the things that I think is most important for people to know is that self-care isn't the cure for burnout. So the way that we think about burnout and the way we've been addressing it and defining it for a long time has been pretty much um, all wrong. And so my goal has been to kind of help people understand the new definition of burnout and understand the symptoms and recognize that it's institutional stress. So it's it's our companies, it's our organizations, it's our institutions that are playing the biggest role in burning us out versus us as individuals managing it or being responsible for it. And so what is this new definition of burnout? Well, the WHO defined it in 2019, which is interesting because it was pre-pandemic. Um, they had been studying it with the International Labor Organization for several years and really looking at the impacts of overwork particularly. And they found that over uh, you know, a meta-study of six years that around 750,000 people, workers die um, from overwork alone every single year. And so they came up with this definition that burnout is unmanageable stress or institutional stress um, at work, specifically at work. And it shows up in three major signs, signs of high level of depletion. It shows up in lack of efficacy in our work or, or disengagement, and then a sense of cynicism. And, um, and there's six root causes of burnout as well, which are institutional. But again, they made this definition and made sure that they, you know, they added to their international classification of diseases, but they also said this is not life stress. This is specifically institutional workplace stress left unmanaged. So when you talk to people about burnout, do you get a lot of false positives and false negatives? And what I mean is, do people often say, I'm burned out when they're not really? And do you often get people denying that they're burned out when they clearly are? Absolutely. I mean, there's lots of environments that we work in, especially certain sectors where if you say you're burned out or claim that you're burned out, then there's a lot of ramifications. There's still a ton of stigma around it. Like the fact that that even there was a, a WHO definition in 2019, I mean, that's only a few years old. And it seems like burnout is this new thing, but it's been around for a long time. And yet most people haven't been able to label it really until this last couple of years. And you know, we still have this expectation on leaders, for example, that they're supposed to be stoic. They're not supposed to show any vulnerability. So this idea of them you know, burning out when for a long time, we just thought it means you're not doing a good enough job uh, or you're not doing well enough in your job or you don't care enough about uh, your workplace you're not going above and beyond um, that is uh, you know is holding people back from actually being able to put up their hand and saying i'm burned out um and also people just haven't there's not enough people that realize and recognize when they are burning out themselves too so they they don't know how to identify it and treat it so how do we identify it? And if, if I think I might be burned out, what should I be looking for? 
we need to be looking for those those signs those and symptoms of burnout, as I mentioned with the WHO definition, but there's more to that. I mean, you can see it in, like I said, that depletion and exhaustion is the first thing that you would recognize, but it's not just I'm tired. It's this feeling of not being able to get up in the morning. You're just completely exhausted at the end of the day. And sometimes by two or three, you feel like you can't focus or concentrate. You're not doing any of the things that you used to love to do. You're not spending time on your hobbies. You're not hanging out with your friends or having dinner with your family. That level of depletion is usually what then leads you into this next level, which is feeling ineffective at work. So one of the things with chronic stress and burnout is you you know, you start to make mistakes in your job. You start to show up late, you leave early, you're physically, you know, ill, you have symptoms like your stomach starting to hurt or you're not sleeping as well. And, you know, that really, for me, is this kind of underperformer myth. We think that people that were once high performing all of a sudden, you know, don't care about their work, they're disengaged, but it really is a sign um, and symptom of burnout when we start to be less effective in our jobs. And then that final piece is that cynicism or that hopelessness, like you can't change anything. And we start to see people using language like always and never, language of permanence. So it's always going to be like that. It's never going to change. I can't do anything about it. What's the point? You know, that kind of language is really telling that you don't feel like you have any control over the situation. And that when we have all those three kind of working to up to that point, that's when we are worried about people or ourselves just hitting the wall. I imagine that certain industries, certain jobs lend themselves to burnout more than others. What are some of the big burnout industries? Healthcare is at the top of the most burnout sectors. We see that in teaching, more likely to see more burnout in that group. Um, right now, we're seeing a lot in in those you know uh, production focused environments like sales and and law people that are you know working for for clients that they're working 60, 70 hours a week or more in some environments you're working a hundred hours a week. That's where we see larger groups of people burning out. And you know, latest data is between in, in healthcare, for example, in between, you know, 60 to 67% of those nurses and physicians still claiming that they are highly burnout, but they are likely to leave their job in the next six months. And so that's one of the things that we need to be careful of is if we're burning people out, you know, because of institutional stress. But wait, when you say we're burning people out because of institutional stress, it's hard for me to really understand what that means. Do you mean that the institution by its own nature just stresses people out and causes this burnout? And and if so, I mean, how do you fix it? What does what does an institution look like that isn't burning out its people? It looks like paying people fairly. It looks like making sure that people have manageable workloads. And it doesn't mean that you can't have periods of time where you're working more or there's a busy time. It's it's making sure that when you can to give people the time off that they need to have productive rest, you know, making sure that you're not emailing people at midnight and expecting them to have an answer for you right then and there or or have a project finished by the next 
morning, um, reducing inefficiencies like meeting fatigue. We have an increase of 252% more Teams meetings alone. I mean, the fact that that's just Teams meeting, imagine how many more Zoom meetings we're having. You know, why do we have to meet so much? Why do we have to be so ineffective with our time so that we're working on our evenings and weekends? There's so many different areas, you know, where we're not paying attention. Right now, we're seeing more disconnection and loneliness and the way that we're working right now remotely for a lot of people, especially our younger workforce, is not working out that well. And and like, I'm just mentioning a couple of those instances, but these are preventable things. These are preventable actions that we can take that can solve for it. I mean, a great example is Shopify, where they did a calendar purge and saved 350,000 hours from their employees, you know, meeting uh, times. Like they, they basically said it was like hiring 150 people into the organization and they did it in a way that was very productive. So we can, we can solve these problems. It's just that a lot of organizations don't know where to start or they, they don't really care. What did Shopify do? They did a calendar purge, which was really exciting. And there's a lot of organizations that are doing this now where they're thinking, how do we create less, you know, um, efficiencies in meetings and reduce meeting fatigue? And what they did is they said, we're going to make it so that we take all of your recurring meetings off the calendar and make it so that if you have to have a meeting, it's between certain times and certain days are off and um, you, you know, any meeting over 50 people has to happen on Wednesday between 11 and five, just really kind of strict uh, management of people's calendars. And they actually created code. So they had a bot that went in and just stripped everyone's, you know, meetings that were kind of inefficient or recurring means off their calendar. And what happened is they found after, you know, this experiment that they had saved 350,000 hours um, and they had so basically given that time back. And then they said it was the equivalent of hiring 150 people and the amount of kind of efficacy and productivity and time that their employees got back from meeting inefficiencies. I imagine it's not a one size fits all solution that the different industries, different organizations would need different approaches to solve the burnout problem. And so what are some of the, the specific approaches? A lot of people are testing the four-day work week, and it's going really well in some instances. But I interestingly just had a conversation with um, a leader who is part of OC Tanner, and they were testing the four-day work week in a factory setting, and they tried it for a few months. That's what their employees wanted, and it really didn't work very well for them. It was it was an experiment that that failed, and so they had to recognize, okay, this isn't really going to work for this group for a lot of reasons and barriers, but they tested it and then they're going to try something else. And other things came out of that experiment and data. And I think that's what organizations need to recognize is that you can jam the toothpaste back in the tube. We've totally changed. We've collectively experienced this mind shift. And so it's okay to let go of old ways of behaving. And even if we try new ways and they don't work, that's fine too. We'll probably learn something really valuable that came came out of that. Is there, generally speaking, one thing that if you had to go after one thing to help mitigate this whole burnout problem, what is the one thing? If we tackle one thing immediately, I would say it would be managing unsustainable workloads because it is the leading cause. There's five other root causes, but overwork being the number one is 
is a substantial and important place for us to tackle. But doesn't it uh, not, I guess, well, I guess I am being devil's advocate here, but, but doesn't it seem odd that you've got this problem that nobody has solved? Well, it makes you think that it's not solvable, that, that no matter what you fix, then people are going to start complaining about something else and that, well, well now we got to fix this, that burnout can never go away because of just the kind of the nature of work and to keep trying to chase it seems at some point you, it's like, okay, you know, there's not much more we could do. It is a complex problem to solve. And I do get that. I get asked to join, you know, tech companies all the time because they're going to create a silver bullet solution to solving for burnout. But but it's not totally hopeless. There's lots of ways that we can solve for it. And, and a lot of it just boils down to organizations that are doing really go- a good job with human-centered leadership and empathetic leadership. And the whole kind of basis of trying to fix burnout or or reducing it greatly. I mean, we're never going to completely fix burnout, but we can reduce it greatly. And the organizations that I see that are doing a good job of it are the ones that are really listening, actively listening to what people need and being transparent about what they can and cannot do, because it's not an expectation that every manager and leader is going to do everything that an employee wants, but they're actively listening to sort of the big issues and saying, this is what we can tackle. And the 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 thing that they're doing that's different is that they're not just taking in, you know, all the survey data, asking people to answer these questions for them and then pretending that they never asked them, you know, not doing anything with it. It's those folks that are saying, okay, well, this is the big thing that came up and this is what we can do and this is how we can tackle it. You know, bear with us. We're going to try to solve for this problem. It's for the organizations like Shopify, for example, like they are looking at the, these big rocks and doing what they can in these, te- you know, very testable ways to try to improve it. And, you know, for example, Hewlett Packard, when you looked at how their employees responded in the pandemic because of this, this, um, you know, open communication that they had, their trust and leadership scores were through the roof. They were, you know, 93% and employee engagement was very high and job satisfaction was very high. So we might not be able to eradicate burnout, but in very simple and actually very inexpensive ways, we can solve for it. So very specifically, you know, because you met, you talked about it, but when companies address the problem, well, I don't even know if they're addressing a problem, but they're trying to create a employee-friendly atmosphere. So they do things like, you know, have a chef and they bring in a masseuse and they have, you know, free snacks and they have a place where you can go and, you know, listen to raindrops and <laughs> is there is there evidence that that does anything, or is that just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? It kind of sounds good and it seems good, but it does it doesn't really do anything. Those are all really nice extra benefits. It's kind of you know like the i kind of the cherry on the top of the ice cream, right? But I say that there's a lot of people that are are given ice cream as the only option when what they really need is 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 to be offered water and so that you know that constant delivery of this you know this ice cream to say here let's fix these problems that are really quite larger than that um their mental health you know issues they're feeling chronically overworked and stressed 
you can't solve that with those kind of those perks. And that's where we look at kind of upstream interventions and strategy at burnout prevention. And then we look at the perks as very different things, but they've been bundled together for a very long time. And those perks are good. I mean, they're nice extras, but they won't motivate your, your people unless you've handled those other underlying issues first. Don't you think too, though, that there are some, there are some lines of work that you know, if you're prone to burnout, maybe, you know, maybe you shouldn't be an ER doctor. Maybe you shouldn't be, a, you know, fill in the blank. But, but there are inherently some jobs that are so stressful that burnout is inevitable. And the only way to, to stop the burnout would be to, you know, not do the job. But somebody's got to do the job. You know, Mike, this is such an you know, excellent observation because people that are prone to burnout, sectors are also attracted to those people. It's like this soup, this recipe for disaster, because, you know, type A perfectionists are very driven and they have a hard time managing their own self-care. And so self-care is still important. We need to model it. Um, We need to take care of ourselves. But when you're this type A high-performing person where you're very much like an all or, or, you know, all or nothing kind of mindset, what happens is that is a person that's driven to these types of jobs. So physicians, for example, high, high rates of burnout, high likelihood that they are perfectionists. Um, Same anytime that you're um, looking to do, you know, to do school for that kind of Uh, you know, investment of your time, investment of money. There's a whole sunk costs mindset too. When you get there, it's difficult for someone that has been in school for eight years, has gone through that kind of rigor, and then you still have to go in and, you know, you've spent another three years in in the hospital before you can even move on to becoming, you know, a full-fledged doctor. There's a point where you you don't want to ever go back to starting fresh. And that means that you're going to stay in an environment that you're unhappy in for a very long time. There's kind of a joke in healthcare amongst doctors, for example, that if you see sabbatical written on their CV, that really it just meant that they were burned out and they were taking a year off pretending to, you know, be on sabbatical or doing research, but really they just needed a year to regroup because they were so exhausted. So you're absolutely right. There's there's groups that are attracting these types of people that are also more likely to burn out. Do most people, do you think, just in your experience, do people who are burned out know it? If they know the labeling of what burnout is, they tend to rec- recognize it more in themselves. But it often is still felt like I should be able to figure this out. You know, why haven't I figured this out? And maybe I should just take a couple days off next week and that'll solve it. Or, you know, maybe I just need to manage my time better. I'm probably, you know, bad at time management. We tend to reflect that it's our fault often. And so we don't really look at it seriously. And I think as well, the term burnout is so nebulous and it's had kind of a bad reputation for a long time. And it's only been in the last few years that we've really started to take it seriously that people are recognizing that those symptoms are, you know, important for us to recognize. 
But, you know, in many cases still, and maybe why I'm so passionate about getting people to understand the definition of burnout is that we are struggling with a problem that we can't solve by ourselves. And if we don't, the impact is is very serious and we should be getting help when we start to recognize the signs. Well, it's good to get some focus, some clarity on what burnout actually is because people use the term a lot. You know, I'm so burned out, but now I, and now I get a sense of what it really is and the real cause. I've been speaking with Jennifer Moss. She's an award-winning journalist and speaker And she is author of the book, The Burnout Epidemic. If you'd like to check that book out at Amazon, there is a link to it in our show notes. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Mike. It was so great to be here. Thanks again for having me. Since COVID, we've probably all gotten a little more careful about germs and spreading germs and what we touch. And we've all been warned about germs on things like shopping carts and doorknobs. But a study has analyzed and found some more germ hotspots that are very common in U.S. metropolitan areas. Here are some of the places that turned out to be high risk for illness-causing bacteria. Gas pump handles, mailbox handles, escalator rails, ATM buttons, parking meters and kiosks, crosswalk buttons, and vending machine buttons. Charles Gerba, professor of microbiology at the University of Arizona, said the tests underscore the importance of maintaining good hand hygiene, noting that most of us don't realize how many germs we're exposed to in just everyday life. And that is something you should know. I would love it if you would talk up this podcast to people you know and ask them to listen. We always appreciate getting new listeners. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.